Sunday Bunch Culture Editor of The Bulwark, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Mike Malloy. Mike Malloy uh, is an expert on tough guy cinema, uh, and he began as a film journalist for newspapers, magazines, and the occasional book. After the decline of print media, RIP, uh, he moved into filmmaking with larger projects like his Eurocrime documentary, but with budgets hard to come by, he has lately settled into a groove of producing and appearing in bonus content for Blu-rays. Uh, he's on Instagram at Tough and Gritty Mike Malloy. Uh, and on YouTube, if you just look up Tough Guy Film Expert Mike Beloy, you'll find his channel. It's full of good stuff. Mike, thank you for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, so here's what I wanted to talk to you about. I really wanted to talk about the business of making Blu-ray extras because I am obsessed with Blu-ray extras. As a lover of physical media, as somebody who, you know, gets the Criterion discs and the Scream Factory discs and the Shout Factory discs and, you know, Arrow and, in and Vindicator and all those great... Uh, uh, you know, uh, Blu-ray labels, um, they're always filled with like little nice little extras on them. And you make some of you make some of the best. I'm going to just throw that out there. You make some of the best. You've got this whole persona down. Uh, I love it. How did you get into making Blu-ray extras? Like this is not a natural career progression for a lot of folks. How did you get into this? Well, yeah, it's interesting because not only did I not start off in this, but I really started, I resented Blu-ray at the outset of the format. But uh, no, I put about 10 years into being a print journalist for newspapers and magazines. And then circa 2007, one night I went to bed and the whole world convened and they took this vote that this thing called print journalism was kind of just going to cease to be a paying profession. So I woke up the next morning and it basically just evaporated. You know, it had shifted to the blogs and it shifted to all these websites where they don't pay the writers. And uh, so I'd always dabbled in filmmaking. So I tried some medium-sized projects. And one of them, my documentary, Euro Crime, the Italian Cop and Gangster Films that Ruled the 70s, that one was actually a, a moderate hit, and it led to me writing the official Django sequel. But outside of that, it didn't lead to anything else. And so now I've kind of uh, settled into this groove. I say groove, but really it's more like a treadmill. Uh, I've settled into this groove of doing this uh, bonus content for Blu-rays. And um, yeah, like I said, I kind of resented the format from its outset because at the beginning, Blu-ray thought it was a mainstream format. It has now found its place in life as a collector's format, all these boutique labels putting out all this stuff and just putting the really deluxe treatment. But at the beginning, it thought it was a mainstream format. And streaming has caught a lot of flack for the decline of physical media, and well-deserved. Streaming may turn out to be the death knell of uh, physical media. But I don't think people really consider how Blu-ray factored into it. Because Blu-ray... Uh, like, think about the physical retail shopping experience. Say, for argument's sake, say that a retailer had uh, 10 spaces, 10 slots for 10 discs on, uh, on its shelf. Back in the DVD era, it could be, you know, five copies of Exploding Robots 3 or whatever BS Hollywood makes now. And it could be five kind of diverse, funky catalog titles. And so there could still be a fun browsing experience when going shopping for DVDs. When Blu-ray came along, back in its mainstream incarnation, uh, the retailer would feel pressured to keep five DVD copies of Exploding Robots 3 and then five Blu-ray copies of Exploding Robots 3. And so it just shopping for physical media became a lot less fun. And I think that really factored into its decline. Uh, but now, like I said, all these boutique labels 
they, you know, I guess there still does exist some mainstream Blu-ray, but it's really found its reason for being in these boutique things. Uh, Blu-ray is more of a collector's format than a mainstream format. And, you know, at first it was these boutique labels doing cult movies and independent movies and foreign movies. But now these little boutique companies, just mom and pop, two, two-man operations, are actually licensing, licensing studio titles. And I've done a couple of those, like I was on a couple of Bronson, uh, Bronson movies that were MGM licensed. And there's a certain prestige in saying, yes, I was on a MGM licensed Blu-ray. But uh, I'm not sure how much more of that I'm going to do because um, the, you, you would think that the studios, you know, they're licensing these uh, titles, these catalog titles to these little tiny boutique companies. So they must not care about them. Well, not true. They, you still have to have studio-approved artwork. You still have to have studio-approved extras. And I like being opinionated, so I don't want to you know, subject myself to studio approval. I would prefer not to water down my opinions. Uh, but, yeah, I've been on all kinds of cult stuff and foreign stuff and Italian stuff and, you know, just tough guy stuff of yore. Yeah. So why don't you why don't you talk a little bit about your uh, your area of expertise and and wh- how you fell in love with these kind of, you know, Italian Euro uh, crime, Euro Euro tough guy stuff. You know, I mean, it's this you don't see a lot of these movies these days, the Bronson uh, actioners, right? Like the, you know, the 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 even the Eastwood, you know, actioners, that sort of stuff. It, it is it is a different world. How did you a a how did you fall into uh, uh, loving this sort of movie? And B describe how you put together an extra for a movie that you know mostly got put out in europe like where what's the research process like on a on a project like this uh well to answer your first uh, second question first uh yeah i get pigeonholed with the italian crime stuff a lot uh because of my documentary euro crime uh fact is i'd like to consider myself an expert i know it's in bad taste to call yourself an expert, but I've put in the 10,000 hours, damn it. Um, uh, I'm just uh, an expert in general in tough guy stuff, classic tough guy stuff, classic depictions of masculinity. Um, you know, cause I don't know, ever since, ever since I was young, I looked to cinema as more than just escapism. You know, I figured like if you just want entertainment, there's sports, there's roller coasters, there's fireworks, I think cinema was meant to be a little something more. Cinema was, you know, supposed to A, be entertainment, but it was also supposed to, you know, have some kind of, you know, instructive value or a value te- teaching you about the human condition. And so I've always liked seeing guys live by a code. I've always seen guys, uh, like seeing guys, you know, choose to do the right thing uh, in the face of tremendous adversity, uh, you know, stand up for their families, fight urban crime, fight, you know, I've just always enjoyed seeing this stuff because, you know, it's relevant to real life. If I, if I want pure entertainment, I would go some see some BS fireworks display. Uh, yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about actually making the the uh, featurettes, right? Like, what is that? What is that process like? I mean, I, I assume, you know, you you uh you you have to find like actual art from the from the film you got to find the actual promotional materials that sort of stuff how do you how do you go about doing that yeah so it breaks down to two types uh, i get asked to do audio commentaries and i get asked to do on camera stuff the on camera stuff is either where i'm introing a movie or just talking about the genre where the, the where the movie fits into a genre um honestly i've never had trouble finding 
posters and stills online. Uh, it was much more of a struggle back when I made my Eurocrime documentary. Uh, and rewinding, you know, 15 years before that, it was a giant struggle when I was doing my Lee Van Cleef biography. I got my first book deal when I was 19 uh, at the very cusp of the Internet, and I was a college student in Alabama. So uh, I basically consider that in pre-Internet times. Um, but, yeah, now it's good grief. Even if you just go looking through eBay auctions, uh, you can find high-res art on just about anything, anything that was ever produced. It's unbelievable. Uh, but the audio commentaries are clearly easier uh, because there's no video component to it. But, you know, that's, that's 90 minutes or more. And if you don't have 90 minutes or more to say about a subject, that's, that can feel like an eternity. Um, also, I have a rule for myself with uh, the fans. I've learned a lot of things in doing this. The fans hate what they call IMDb commentaries, uh, where you're just rattling off titles and stuff. I could easily fill the 90 minutes if I were to reduce myself to that. But I hold myself to a higher standard. I don't like to bring up any random supporting character actor or anything like that unless I have a larger point to make. Uh, that's, that's a rule I've made for myself. Um, also, um, well, I guess with the, the on-camera stuff, yeah, it's, you know, there's a video component to it. That's more work. Uh, there's editing to it. And this is really a niche market. So to make the margins work for myself, I've always edited my own stuff. And now, especially since lockdown, I've started shooting my own stuff. So, uh, yeah, the on-camera stuff, there's more, uh, you know, more uh, labor involved. But if you only have 10 to 15 minutes to say on a subject, I, you know, that's, that's the preferable, preferable format, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, in, in terms of like clearing rights or anything, do you like do you ever get stuck in a position where you where you have to like track down a, you know, a defunct distributor or label or something? Be like, hey, is it OK if I use this or, or is this all this is all under like fair use? Well, fair use is less of a hard and fast law as it is more of a legal opinion. And so if I'm doing a feature length documentary like Eurocrime, yes, I paid in a lawyer for a fair use opinion. If somebody's doing a, you know, a low dough Blu-ray extra, nobody's going to pay for a lawyer's mm -hmm. fair use opinion. So what I typically do is, you know, the, the boutique distributor, the label, they have licensed this movie. It just stands to reason that clips from that movie are fine to be used. Elsewise, everything I use is, uh, you know, posters and publicity stills and stuff like that. And even there, it's just getting ridiculous how uh, how much greed, I guess, there is in the world. Uh, there's this effort, you know, you've probably seen on Getty Images. These guys who were studio still photographers back in the 70s mm -hmm. and stuff now are trying to get their stuff, you know, licensed through Getty. These things are publicity image. Their very reason for existence was to be reproduced. Yeah. Posters, their whole purpose is to be reproduced. I once had a meeting with a big corporate entity and they were telling me they were a cable broadcaster and they were telling me that their parent company, which was an even bigger media conglomerate, uh, was, you know, owned some of the uh, movies. And so they, as a cable broadcaster, were actually paying their parent company to license the film trailers to show in between movies on their cable broadcasting channel. And uh, I said, well, why are you doing that? Not only are trailers considered in the public domain, but, uh, you know, uh, they're your parent company. Why? And they said, well, we're trying to set up a legal precedent to get trailers pulled out of the public domain. I think that's total BS. 
yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I like I, you know, I I have well, I I don't have this anymore. But once upon a time, you know, I worked at an actual print newspaper, and they had an enormous archive of publicity stills. It was basically, you know, um, little little uh, what do you call them? The um, that you put in the the spinning carousel, right? The slides. Oh, they had like little, yeah. yeah, They had like they had like slides and just pages and pages of them, just huge giant notebooks. And and the whole reason that these things existed was to use as publicity for the for the the movie in question. Um, I mean, like it. It's not even. I like. I I can't even. I don't even. I actually wonder what the legal. I'll have to get a lawyer on to talk about this one day. But I I wonder what the actual legal precedent here is. I don't think you can put something in the public domain like that and then take it back. I don't think that's how it works. Yeah, and it's just it it just smacks of bad taste. You know, those photographers they got paid back in the day for doing that work, and now to try to squeeze a little more blood from the stone, it's just in bad taste. Um, I'm pleased that you know fair use has widened in the way it has. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's I, I you mentioned something and I'm, I'm kind of curious about this because it, 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 it is it is an interesting little uh, little nugget uh, that I don't think people think about. But when you when you when you mentioned having to get approval from MGM on on some of these extras uh, or studios in general, it doesn't have to be specifically about MGM. What are they looking for? I mean, are they are they mostly just worried about you, you know, having a, having a bad opinion on a movie that they're involved with? I mean, what is what are, what is the sort of thing that they're like, no, you can't say that you can't say that on on this extra for this movie? I'm not actually a part of that conversation. It's between the distributor, the label that licensed the thing. I guess they submit the extras for approval. Um, but I imagine it's just corporate safeness, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is ridiculous. Because if you think back to DVD, what was the very first thing that what was the very first title card that would play when you would pop a DVD in the player? Do you remember? You yeah, you still get. I still get this on the the discs now. Some of these ex, these extras, uh, you know, may feature opinions that are not. Uh, reflective of the studio we do not have any responsibility for anything that is said on this blah 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 you would think that would be sufficient that's funny that's funny um so let's let's talk a little bit about euro crime because i do think it's uh oops sorry i'm back uh let's talk a little bit about euro crime because i do uh i do think it's an interesting documentary that people should check out if they get get the chance what how did you get started with that project and uh, what, you know, what, what is the, what was the response to it? Well, I was actually embroiled in a four-year book writing contract of movie tough guys of the seventies and encyclopedia, uh, four-year book writing contract. It was going to be one of the linchpins of my career. And, uh, two years in, uh, we lived in a rather slummy neighborhood and two years in, uh, somebody burgled our house and they stole both my laptop and my backup drive. And, um, you know, I, this was before Carbonite and everything, uh, you know, all this cloud technology. So I was backing up against, uh, like computer hard drive failure. I never thought to back up against theft, but, um, so in doing that book, I found, you know, I was supposed to be watching and I was, I was supposed to be watching all kinds of Kung Fu films and black exploitation and, you know, exploitation and just everything under the sun for the book. And yet I kept wanting to put all the other genres off. I had just gotten the bug for these Euro crime movies, these Italian crime films 
which were made roughly between 72 and 80. Uh, they were the fad that replaced the spaghetti western because the Italians were very fad oriented. And a lot of people, the, you know, the spaghetti western penetrated America. Uh, but even if people know the spaghetti western, even if they know how fad oriented the Italians were, a lot of people never really thought, well, something must have come after the spaghetti western. What replaced it? Well, what replaced it is the Italians went nuts over The Godfather, and they went nuts over movies like Dirty Harry and The French Connection. So they just went hog wild with these uh, gangster films and these cop films, again, roughly from 72 to 80. And, uh, you know, they may have started as imitations of American cop and gangster films, but because Italy was so embroiled in political turmoil and strife with the red terrorism that decade, uh, it really ended up being kind of a way to hold a mirror up to Italian ills of the day. That's interesting. I mean, I, I like you, you, there is, there's a definite like underground, uh, under undercurrent of love for these films. You see it a lot in, uh, in, in the world of film writing. Um, but they're still, kind of hard to track down right i mean it's not they're not uh you know uh, they're not being shown on hbo right they're not on hbo max they're not on netflix or anything like that uh the the uh, amazon the, prime being the one exception amazon prime yeah amazon prime has a really good uh has has done a very good job of of kind of keeping this flame alive but you know on top of that you have the the blu-ray producers and this is uh to bring it back to the the blu-rays and the blu-ray extras i mean this is the um the sort of keeper of the flame, right? I mean, you the the only way to keep these things alive is to find a way to make money off of them, and the only way really to make money off of them is with these physical discs, right? Well, think about it. Um, I'm hoping that some of the novelty of streaming will wear off, and that sounds funny because novelty, because you know, uh, it's it's mainly about convenience. Uh, it's never really been about novelty. But think about it. Uh, even a casual film fan. Uh, Say you're at home alone, you want to see this old favorite of yours, you check streaming, every single platform you subscribe to, none of them have it. Your local mom and pop video store closed down five years ago. You're really in the mood to see this movie. Tonight, that night, don't you wish you owned it? You've, you've, most people have decommissioned their Blu-ray player and their DVD collections. Uh, so it really, I hope that at some point people say, oh, wait, my options with streaming are to watch 300 new series, all starring Jason Bateman. Um, you know, I'm hoping that people say, oh, you know, there is a lot of value in being able to see what I want when I want. Who is your favorite uh, old school tough guy actor? If, if you had to pick one, what, where, where would you tell audiences to, to, to look? Well, the guy who I've, that's impossible to say it's, it's, you know, depends on what day you ask me, but, uh, the guy who got me started down my career path was Lee Van Cleef. Uh, mm -hmm. he was the bad from the good, the bad and the ugly. He was a Hollywood character actor, played a lot of villains and then just got totally reinvented by going over to Italy and starring in, uh, spaghetti Westerns. I, uh, you know, I got hooked on his spaghetti Westerns as a teenager. And by 19, I had gotten a book deal to write his biography. That's pretty cool. Uh, so what, uh, is the is the biography still is it on Amazon? Can we can we tell? People yeah, it's in print. On? But again, I wrote it at age nineteen, and uh, outside yeah, that's, of that's outside right. of Stephen Crane writing Red Badge of Courage at age nineteen, I'm <laughs> not sure most nineteen year olds have a uh, any business writing a book. Your frontal lobe hasn't even developed by nineteen. It's true. That's true. But still, you know, it's good. It's good. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I don't regret it. It set me down my career path. But um, 
you know, uh, I've heard this quote by, I think, an author named Joe Adamson, and he said, the best way to start researching a film book is to first get it published, meaning that uh, once you write something, a million bits of information will hit you after the fact. Mm -hmm. And that especially, you know, being so young and being kind of in pre-internet Alabama, uh, yeah, that was definitely the case. I learned so much about Van Cleef's career since the publication of that book, but it's also a closed chapter no pun intended, of my life. I don't want to do a second edition or anything like that. <laughs> uh, that's fair. Uh, so uh, the 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 world of YouTube has offered up uh, kind of a new avenue for uh, getting getting your work out there and getting uh, people familiar with the uh, world of, you know, your tough guy cinema, right? Uh, the, the sort of stuff that you're that you're into. Talk to me. I, I, I'm curious about your take on the world of the internet as a means of getting your work out there. I mean, you 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 live through the the print, the death of print, the rise of the internet, um, uh, the the rise of streaming, the death of DVD. Uh, but but there is, I as some again as somebody who is really into physical media, uh, I I do think there is something useful about having uh, YouTube and more importantly online stores to kind of get people. To, to take care of that um, uh, physical space problem that you referenced earlier. I mean, I, I, I do think uh, that, you know, your your YouTube channel has a lot of interesting stuff on it. How does that work for you as, as a means of getting uh, attention to your work? Well, I going back to the idea of there being more labor when you add a video component, yes, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, I have to, uh, you know, shoot stuff. I have to, uh, you know, be charismatic on camera. Uh, at least I, that's the aim. Um, and yeah, just tremendous more effort relative to writing a printed piece. The trade-off is that, you know, a nameless, faceless byline, I'm not sure that I would have, you know, connected with an audience like I have as being an on-camera person. So that's the trade-off. Uh, yeah, more effort. And uh, I have to watch my weight even. <laughs> Yeah, that's the word. As, as somebody who has decided to stop doing that during the uh, pandemic, <laughs> let me tell you, it's uh, it's a it's a real pain. I, but you you have created a little a nice little community, and I was I remember being very uh, very pleasantly surprised when we uh, published some of your stuff at Rebeller, my previous uh, place of employment, about how much love that got on Facebook relative to some of the other stuff that we were putting out there. I mean, people really seemed. Uh, people were very, very uh, supportive of you and supportive of the work you were doing for us. And I'm, I, I just, I'm curious. Uh, again, uh, how do, how do you go about building that community? I mean, is it, is it, um, you know, is it just a, a function of, of really interacting with people? What did you, did you find a niche community that was like really lacking a, a, uh, a, a face to tell their story? I, I'm, I'm curious, like what your what your take on all that is. I think that's a, exactly. I think that I'm filling a gap or filling a niche, uh, but it was never calculated. These are my naturally occurring interests. They, they estimate that of uh, genre cinema, that 80% of it, well, not even genre cinema, independent cinema, they estimate that 80% is geared towards horror. And that's just so lopsided. And horror has become such a lazy genre, both from the production side and the fandom side. It's like, oh, what is this, horror? Oh, I'm supposed to like it? Okay. Um, so it's like I was uh, a producer and an actor in a Western that uh, that was the first time I ever sold a movie, uh, The Scarlet Worm. And I really think 
because uh, that was just uh, you know super micro budget, and you're not supposed to make a movie micro budget, kind of like my Lee Van Cleef uh, book. It was a noble failure, uh, but we sold it easily, and we got uh, you know a worldwide distribution on it, and I think that's because there were very few westerns being made in two, 2010. Um, and it's the same thing now. It's just uh, I, I fill a niche. And uh, the good news is I don't have to strain to do it. These are my naturally occurring interests, and they have been since I was 15. Uh, it's been a tremendous career struggle ever since, you know, I started off, and it still is every day, keeping the lights on. But, uh, you know, I made a plan for what I wanted to do with my life back in my teen years, and I'm still doing it. So I really can't complain. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned to me that you uh, you have some screenplays out there that you're you know getting getting optioned and and working on producers with. I I, I like the the world uh, coming from this world a little bit at my last job. It it really is a, a a fascinating gap in the market. You know, kind of that that lower budget action. I don't want to say grindhouse or exploitation, but like you know, I, I I like I like your shorthand, tough guy cinema. I mean, these are these are movies that are not really being made uh, as much. Um, but I do think we are. I, I do think there is a, a modest kind of boom in this right now, where you have, you know, some of it. Some of it is very bad. A lot of the director red box stuff, for instance. Um, but you know, there there you have the the occasional gems. Well, uh, yeah, a couple of things about that. Uh, first, a clarification. Tough guy cinema. Yeah, that's the shorthand I use. Uh, that not meant to be a sexist term, believe it or not, because I love, uh, you know, uh, women that show just tremendous character and resolve and strength. Uh, but I say tough guy cinema to differentiate it from action cinema. I'm not super into super kinetic, you know, triple somersaults while spraying, you know, uh, two machine guns and a lycra bodysuit. I'm not into that kind of stuff. That's not really, it's more about strength mm -hmm. of character and stuff. That's why I just use tough guy cinema as a shorthand. Uh, secondly, I think what qualifies me to be a screenwriter in this idiom is the fact that I know, you know, having been a film journalist for decades, I know what's been done and what hasn't been done. And I always look to the way I put it is like, I like to break uh, new ground with an old plow. Um, I do not want to tread stuff that's already been done before. I want to find the premise that, uh, and also I think, you know, uh, having, you know, seen way too much cinema for one lifetime, I think I know what works and what doesn't. So I think that's what qualifies me. Yeah. What, uh, what do you think works and what doesn't? I, 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 now I'm going to put you on the spot. You, you say what works and what doesn't. What 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 are, what are we missing at the movies right now that that need? What is the gap that needs to be filled? Well, uh, one of the screenplays that I have that has gotten the most attention, the most highest name directors attached to it, and stuff like that. It's it hasn't still hasn't gotten produced. It's got uh, it's been optioned again and working with some great filmmakers now. Hope to get it produced. But the one thing that's great about it, I think, is that it is the antidote to this this trend we've seen. Uh, the trend in horror, I think, has just been envelope pushing for the sake of envelope pushing as far as gore and brutality and stuff. And I think with uh kind of similar with action cinema it's like you know look at this uh latest rambo the only novelty it has is the sadism and the mean-spiritedness of the kills uh and like how far can you push that so i really wanted to my uh my idea was to try to write a character that was 100 percent purely heroic there was nothing anti-heroic about him at all it didn't rely on mean-spiritedness it didn't rely on sadism it didn't rely on these brutal kills uh, to write this hero that was 100% heroic 
and yet not have him be a squeaky clean, goody two shoes, white hat wearing guy. That was my challenge to myself. And I must have succeeded because, uh, you know, that, that again, that's then the script of mine that's gotten the most attention. Uh, yeah, well, that that is definitely a gap in the market right now. Just, you know, getting rid of the anti and antihero. Just we need we need some heroes, man. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. But to, to do it in a very specific kind of way. Awesome. Um, I always like to ask my guests at the end of the show if there was anything I should have asked, if there's anything uh, that you think audiences should know, either about, you know, the world of of kind of boutique Blu-ray production, uh, your work as a documentarian, uh, as a as a as a screenwriter. What 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 should people know uh, that I have in my foolish awfulness as an interviewer failed to ask? Well, uh, when we talked a couple of days ago, you had wondered about the acquiring the rights to these movies. And uh, with the studio license stuff, I have no part in that whatsoever. Uh, but in the more independent world and the Italian stuff, I've helped broker some deals as far as getting labels, the rights to these movies. And the most colorful example probably was when my Eurocrime movie had been, my Eurocrime documentary had been a festival hit, but it had not yet gotten a distribution deal. And this one very famous uh, cult label invited me to dinner when I was out in L.A. one time. And uh, he said, hey, Mike, I really want to put out your Eurocrime movie. Good. I really want to make it the centerpiece of a box set of a bunch of these types of movies. And I said, oh, great. And he said, but here's the thing. Uh, one of these rights holders will not work with me because we had a dispute in the past over ownership of one of the, the rights to one of these movies. So um, they will not deal with me. So I want you to go to them, and I want to them to tell you that you're going to be putting out this box set, and you would like to license these rights from them. And then I would like you to turn around and sub-license them to me. And, um, you know, I guess I, I, guess I admired his... Uh, <laughs> his uh, uh, being enterprising but uh yeah that was a shade too shady for old mike malloy so i declined yeah. his offer but uh you know there's you know yeah personality does get into this thing there is ill will between some of these companies and rights holders and stuff like that yeah i mean i it, it, it is people don't really think about the world of distribution uh like they do the world of production i mean i i don't think people understand what really goes into distribution uh, just in general. Um, so that's interesting. That's, that's, that's a very, that's kind of a, an amusing little anecdote there. Now, uh, let me ask, right, great. let me ask you something, uh, yeah, sure. like, uh, of your, of your five favorite films, uh, just hmm. pick one of your five favorite films. Uh, rattle that off for me. Uh, one, just one of yeah, my five one, favorite yeah. films. I'll go with this one. I've got a poster of Olzana's raid behind Olzana's me. Raid. Uh, that's, okay. That's how many, a... how many times would you say you've seen it? Uh, Oh, probably three now i just just in the last like year or so here okay um, okay i was i was kind of seeking the answer where you say you know uh, some kind of tried and true classic that you've seen 50 times i was expect oh, no, i was actually no, no, expecting no. one of those because for for people like for me with deliverance uh i deliverance was uh probably it's always in my top five of favorite movies uh even no matter how i'm feeling that day uh i've seen it 50 plus times uh on it, I collect every new Blu-ray, uh, every new physical media edition of it, because at mm -hmm. this point, after having seen the movie for 50 times, I'm much more likely, if I'm home alone, I'm much more likely to want to watch the bonus content than to see the feature itself again at this point. Uh, I, I hear every last little in-the-weeds detail about its production. Uh, well, I... 
what? Let me ask because I I am not I am not an obsessive repurchaser of of uh, movies with with a few exceptions. I mean, I own like three different editions of Heat, for instance. But like the the when you when you get to the like fourth or fifth or sixth Blu-ray edition of a movie like Deliverance. Are you actually learning anything new in the bonus features? Like, what are, what are you what are what are the tidbits that you're taking away? I feel like it it there has to be some some diminishing return at some point. <laughs> well, De- Deliverance is a bad example uh, because there actually have <laughs> only been three North American editions of it, and I have them all. Um, but yeah, the 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 I think the the premise still holds true that at this point I would like to you know even if it's uh, some guy doing a like for me. Uh, my favorite format as a creator of Blu-ray content, my favorite format is what I call mini doc. Uh, I don't have the budget to go and interview other people involved with the making of story, but I do have enough time and budget to, uh, message them privately, email them privately, get some of their stories and work it in, weave it into my own narration. Uh, so, uh, you know, even as we lose a lot of the original participants, of the making of these movies, I still think that there's research to be done and I'm involved in it. Uh, and I, as a, as a consumer, I like, uh, you know, just using deliverance as an example. Again, I'm much more likely to watch some well-researched thing about deliverance now than I am to watch the movie itself, unless there's somebody in my home that has never seen it. In which case I would also want to have that Blu-ray because I want the best possible presentation for showing the feature to somebody, to some uninitiated person. Yeah, that's that's a great point. All right, uh, thank you very much for being on the show, Mike. I really appreciate it. Uh, you can uh, let me let me just rattle off those uh, uh, Instagram. The Instagram is tough and gritty, Mike Malloy. And again, if you go to YouTube and look up tough guy film expert Mike Malloy, you'll find his channel. Um, uh, and and check out some of the, you. You have some extras on new Blu-rays coming out, right? What were the what were the titles on those? Uh, yeah, I've got a, uh, none of them for North America, but, uh, yeah, I've got a new Italian crime film called Silent Action I do the audio commentary for, and, uh, boy, what an embarrassment. Uh, I, I accidentally say Carlson instead of Carson on one character's name. Uh, oh, I catch myself by the end of it. That's the good news about having the 90 minutes to fill, is you can catch some of your mistakes by the end. <laughs> um, and, uh, then, uh, yeah, a Bronson film called Murphy's Law. I did, a uh, Murphy's Law is about, uh, Bronson being, uh, handcuffed to a foul-mouthed teenager. And so I, uh, I did a, a, a like a 20-minute, uh, little mini-doc on the whole subgenre of the odd couple handcuffed together subgenre. Yeah. Uh, so if you have the region free Blu-ray player like I do, make sure to check those out uh, and and uh, have some have some fun with Mike Malloy. Uh, I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I have really enjoyed this chat uh, with Mike on The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Uh, we will be back next week with another episode. See you guys. Later.